Welcome to the Ion Annapolis Local Business Spotlight. There are thousands of locally owned businesses in the area, some small and some large. Some you may know and others you don't. But one thing they all have in common is a great story, and we want to share it with you. Join us every Saturday as we talk to the founders, the owners, and the managers of local businesses you have come to know and love, and those you will come to know and love. Now here's your host, John Frenet, with this week's Local Business Spotlight. I don't know whether we're into fall or winter, but it's a beautiful morning. We're here at Rise Up Coffee in Edgewater, and we're sitting down with Jerry Manheim, who is a local author here based out of Edgewater, which I, I find that the Annapolis area has a lot of authors. Um, which I don't know whether that's something unique to Annapolis or pretty status quo elsewhere. But I mean, I've met an awful lot of people. You have written a series of baseball themed books. They're fiction, but they uh, with intrigue and uh, it's very, very interesting. Now, have you always been an author? Yeah, I've been writing since about third grade. Uh, and, um, hopefully was, it's improved a little bit since, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, uh, a long career as an academic. So I did a lot of, of scholarly type type of writing and, and serious nonfiction writing. And I retired about uh, a dozen years ago and didn't want to do that anymore. And, and really hadn't thought much about writing fiction until I was watching TV one night and got inspired. Really? Yeah. What inspired you? Antiques Roadshow. Reruns. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I was I was dozing off almost in front. You know, they do this, uh, uh, here's what it was worth 15 years ago, and here's what it's worth today. And they were doing one of those. It was an old 2003 show. I have a long, lifelong interest in baseball. And they had uh, this fellow come on who was down in South Carolina, or, or no, he's in Georgia, and um, he was a military collector, and he had gone to a yard sale, I think, and bought himself a box of old military papers uh, two weeks before the program and brought them in, and they were going through the box, and the Fraser had pulled out a couple pieces of paper. One of them was a payroll sheet, and the other was a daybook page from... Uh, a training camp at a place called Camp Hancock, which was just outside of Augusta, Georgia. This this is back in World War One, and the interesting thing about it was that the payroll sheet was for a company that included seven future members of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Interesting. All together in Georgia, training in an ordnance company, uh, and you had Ty Cobb. the The officer was Christy Matheson. Uh, Honus Wagner was there. Home Run Baker was there. Uh, so these were well-known people. I and mean, the Hall of Fame didn't come around for 20 years after that. But these were the, the creme de la creme of baseball. You know, that's kind of interesting. And I went back to doze off. And I kept mulling it over and mulling it over. And I realized that what I had seen was inconsistent with what everybody knows about baseball history in World War One. It was fundamentally inconsistent. There's a there's a story about Christy Matheson and Ty Cobb at the end of the 1918 season joining the Chemical Warfare Service as captains and being shipped over to France for training. And there was a supposedly a poison gas training accident, and they were both involved. 
Cobb came out okay. Matheson got the worst of it. And Matheson died a few years later prematurely of tuberculosis. And the story was that that had been a long-term effect of the the gassing. Uh, And they were... You know, treated as war heroes, and they got a lot of publicity, and that that was the history. But there was nothing about them being in a training camp with seven Hall of Famers in Georgia in June of that year. And if you go to the Hall of Fame, they have little plaques showing military service from various of the, the players there. But some of the players who were in this training camp don't have those blacks. And I started to really think about that and to look into it a little bit more. And I found out that uh, there was uh, the beginning of the chemical warfare service in the Army, which was, was the, the uh, service that was going to deal with poison mm-hmm. gas and the like. And they were having recruiting problems. And the commanding general, a guy named William Seibert, got in touch with uh, Branch Rickey. Uh, this is long before the Jackie Robinson stories about Branch Rickey, uh, but Rickey was a baseball executive and they had a big news conference in, in Washington. And they said, we're going to show that service in the chemical warfare uh, division of the army is, is important and a good thing to do. And we're going to recruit professional baseball players and athletic types to come in and show that this is a good thing. So basically, what I think they did is they put together a propaganda unit with all these players, and they sent them down to this training camp, uh, Ordnance Company 44 at Camp Hancock. They sent them down in June of 1918. Well, they were supposed to be there for two or three weeks. They were only there 10 days. And the daybook shows people going in and out of the hospital, including Matheson, who spent several days in the hospital. So I thought to myself, because I have a background in political strategy, strategic communication, that was my field, I thought to myself, I bet there's something else going on here. And so I, I researched what I could research and made up what I had, had right. to make up but, but you can, and, and basically con- constructed a, a story that is a reasonable hypothesis that explains how you get from a bunch of Hall of Famers at a training camp in Georgia in June to two guys in France and a poison Chemical gas warfare. episode. Yeah. That's, I, well, I mean, this is during the dead ball era. Yes. And, I mean, pretty much baseball was horrible during, <laughs> during that time. <laughs> it was so, different. I mean, it was different. So, I mean, that's, that is exactly where, you know, you bring the intrigue in. Well, that's, that's it. And it, it actually got me into the rest of these books because I, I started learning more about the dead ball era. This is the, the period from about, 1900 to about 1920. Uh, at the beginning of that period, you had baseballs that didn't go anywhere. Uh, and you had really the beginnings of Major League Baseball. The, the National League was formed in 1876, but it was kind of a floating target in terms of where they were and how they did. In 1900, Ben Johnson and Charles Comiskey, a couple of now famous baseball names, took over a, a minor league called the Western League. They renamed it the American League, and they decided that they would be another major league. So they started stealing players from the, the National League, and this went on for a couple of years. In 1903, there was something called the National Agreement, and they basically divided the spoils between them, and they declared themselves the two major leagues. And you could think of that as kind of the symbolic start of the dead ball era. 
And it went until about 1920. In 1919, you had the, the Black Sox scandal. But through those last couple of years, the baseball was being redesigned. They changed the core. They changed the stitching. Uh, they were by then made by machines instead of hand-stitched. Uh, and the balls were much livelier. Then you had Babe Ruth, Bambino come along and become a hitter around that same period. So it's the sandwich time in between. It was a time of turmoil in baseball because they had to deal with the draft and World War One and the changing uh, market conditions. Uh, it was a, also a challenging time in the country. You had the emergence of American Empire, Panama Canal, the Federal Reserve, the income tax, World War, the so-called Spanish flu, which turns out to be the Kansas flu. Uh, <laughs> so there, were, there was just a lot of social turmoil, political turmoil, and baseball turmoil. And it became a really interesting period to look at. So the other books came out of that. Well, okay, so this is a series of five, five books or six? Six. Four, four in print, one coming out uh, in January and another that's on the computer. So there's some intrigue and some tea. So we've got a potential of six books. The first one, I guess, is called This Never Happened. Then you've got The Gamekeepers, Double Day, Double Tree. Uh, double Take. The, double Take. And then um, The Federal Case, which is the latest one that's out right. in stores right now. Well, I don't know about stores, but it's certainly available everywhere. Available in stores. Yeah. And uh, the Keystone or the Keystone Corner, which is uh, Thomas Edison turns two, and that's the January one. Right? Yes. What I find interesting is that these are not uh, done on Amazon self-publishing. Platform. No, no. This is these are actually published by a, a, a publisher, which is pretty impressive. If this is your this is your first foray into public books, I would say, correct? In the in the uh, fiction, yeah. You've got some chops to come in and be able to get a, a book deal. It was a learning experience. <laughs> well, <they all> are. <laughs> there are, it, you know, I, I did a lot of academic publishing, and over the years I learned how to do that successfully and, and with relative ease. And I was, I've always been blessed by, by finding it easy to write. But I got in the habit of writing the books before I placed them. Okay. So I wrote the first book, and then I decided to go out and, and place it because it, if you don't do that, other people get to tell you what's in the book. But if you come in with a finished book, you know what you want, what you want to end up with. Fair, fair. Well, when did This Never Happened release? When did you write that? Uh, well, I, I saw that program in 2018, wrote it basically over the four or five months after I saw it, so into 2019. So we've got five years and five books, five novels. Pretty much, yeah. That's pretty impressive. How do you, how do you write? What's your writing style? I mean, do you... I, I spoke with a gentleman who lives up in Davisville named Jeff Gunhus has written several books. And his thing was I, I get up at four o'clock in the morning and I commit to two hours a day of putting something, he would say paper, but, you know, something in the computer. And then at that point, he helps get his kids ready to school and everything else to move on. And he figures out the rest of it like that. And that was his deal to, to do that. How do you, what's your style? Well, with, with these books, um, I don't know what I'm writing until I write it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I know the story I want to tell, and and the books um, they all have a base in the in the uh, Back. in the dead ball years, but they're contemporary stories. Uh, they're contemporary mysteries or legal thrillers that are that that come out of facts from the dead ball period that project forward into the contemporary era, and so I have my contemporary characters and I have the historical dramas 
and I have to figure out how to weave them through. And I kind of let the stories tell themselves. I I almost never know where they're going to end until I'm about half or two-thirds of the way through. And then I can see how things are going to come together. And I always, one one critic described them as twisty-turny. I build word games into them. I build um, lots of clues into them and unexpected turns. And they always end up someplace that's logical if you think back to what you read 200 pages before. But you may not realize that they're logical until at, then, at the moment, at, until then, as, as you're and, and they're writing. written, they're written. I find I have to confess, I tried to write fiction many times in the past. I would have a title or I would have a good sentence or paragraph or an odd character. And I never got past page three because I didn't know how to do it. And the thing about the experience with this never happened was that I realized that because I had so many different elements of the story, I could develop them in sections individually and put them in parallel and have them come together to make the overall plot. And once I realized that, I began writing in smaller sections. And so that's a, that's a mechanism that I use. Uh, I don't get up with any plan. Uh, when, I, when I feel like writing, I'll sit down for two or three hours, and then I get tired and I stop. Writing fiction without a passion behind it is nearly impossible. And before we started recording, you said that you are a baseball fan and we're sitting across from me with a Nationals jacket on. Uh, so, I, I mean, I've got to imagine that makes it a lot easier when you've got the the passion and the, the oomph to dig into it and that the dead ball season was, or seasons, were fascinating to you. And I remember when I read the first tagline on the on the thing, when the email, when you sent me initially, it says, you know, tales of history, mystery, deception, intrigue, and baseball. And it was, you know, and it was like, okay, so that, that's what, that was the hook. Well, where does this all come in? And this makes perfect sense now. I love that you are a baseball fan. Who, by the way, who did, um, who, who's your team now? You've, you've traveled the country and you've lived in different yeah, places exactly. of the country. Well, my team now is the Nationals, but it's hard again to be a Nationals <laughs> fan. Um, I was an Indians fan for a long time because my family was, was from okay. there. And as a kid, we'd go back and spend summers at the Mistake by the Lake, yeah, right. uh, which was about the worst right. ballpark you can imagine. Um, and then the better part of my life in minor league cities or, or places I really didn't feel a lot of connection to, um, but then when the when the Nationals came Back. in 2005, uh, I rediscovered my passion for the game. My wife, who'd, who'd never known me during Major League Baseball years, was amazed to see how, <laughs> how into it I got. We've got another book sort of in the can-ish. Uh, not, not quite wrapped up yet, but what's, what's the future hold for Jerry Manheim? Are you going to continue to be writing or... Well, are you I, just going to take the royalties and move to Tahiti? Oh, uh, royalties! What are those? <laughs> <laughs> I learned long ago that uh, most people who write books, including myself, you don't get a lot of money off of royalties. You do it because you enjoy doing it, mm-hmm. or because you have something you want to say. Uh, when I run out of steam, I run out of steam. The the next one, the one that's half done, is actually kind of a fun project because the the uh, dead ball hook that I'm using is the very first congressional baseball game in 1909. And one of the fun thing about it, it was organized by a guy named John Tenor. Tenor was a congressman, and then he became governor of Pennsylvania. While he was governor of Pennsylvania, he was also president of the National League. And he had been a star baseball player, 
and had been one of these guys. I mean, the federal case is about teams, about a league that challenged the, the major leagues. And he had been on a part of a previous challenge to the major leagues in something called the Players League way back in the 1800s. Uh, so he's kind of an interesting character. And the whole congressional baseball thing opens up ways of talking about uh, Congress as well. Are we going to continue on with the baseball We'll see. Probably. Okay. I don't know. Future. We'll see. Uh, I, I uh, probably, if I if I keep writing fiction, I'll probably keep doing that because there is, uh, the books are getting nice reviews. There's a bit of a following. I've got a couple of character sets going forward. So a lot of that kind of work is done. Well, one of the things that, you know, I've got, shouldn't go without saying is that two of these books have been award winners. Well, they've been award finalists. Okay. Um, well, I mean, hey, so, I'm happy with yeah. that, man. <laughs> but so, which of the four that you have published are you most proud of? Or is that like asking, like, what's your favorite kid? Well, I like the the first one because it really started with a true, genuine historical mystery: uh, how these papers came to be and what they really say about baseball and. Uh, I'm still tracking down that mystery. So I, I like that one, and uh, I learned to write fiction on that. And I like the last one, The Federal Case. Um, it's my first shot at a legal thriller, and I've had lawyers tell me it's pretty good. So I figure, okay. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they're lawyers who have time to read, so I don't know. <laughs> you know, I imagine that any baseball fan would be intrigued by this. I would hope so. Uh, and anybody that's in, into, you know, twisty turny. Well, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, there's baseball history in these books, but there's also a lot of other history. In the first book, I had, uh, a sports writer who was traveling around the country in the 1930s because he had stumbled across this story about Christy Matheson and Ty Cobb, and he was going to interview people. And he's, the only way to do that was on the train. So I actually researched the train schedules and trains that went to which towns and, and uh, had to go by bus from from one train station to some small town in Georgia. And uh, it happened that that Trailways bus system started that year. So I researched the Trailways bus system. There's a whole lot of that kind of stuff built in. And also because, uh, again, my, my professional background was in communication strategies and, and things of that sort, there's a lot of that kind of thing built into all of them as well. So there's propaganda stuff in there and strategic communication politics. Interesting. Interesting. Are you a stat junkie when it comes to baseball? Are you the, are I you am the a, guy that's, that's no. irritating us all? when we? <laughs> no. I Actually, it's an interesting question. There is a group called the uh, Society of American Baseball Research, SABRE. The whole idea of using statistics to predict and evaluate behavior. And I'd known about it for a long time, but because I wasn't, I was a stat junkie in my professional life, but not in my baseball life. And because I, uh, I knew that reputation, I had stayed away from joining the group for a while. But when I started writing about baseball, I decided it was time to, to look into it more closely. It turned out to be a group with a bunch of baseball historians and, and people with interest in the business of baseball and, and baseball and the arts and a whole lot of different aspects of the game. So there's, there's a, a lot of, it's a big house for, right. for baseball fans. And, and I have found that value in being a member of Sabre. Fantastic. What do you read? Do you read? Do you read, or you just write? 
I read, <laughs> uh, I read history. I read uh, history of science. Read some baseball books. So, you're, are you are you pretty much a nonfiction kind of a reader guy? I am. Uh, I which is which I is was funny. Well, it's funny, and and for a long time I wasn't. Um, you know, John Sanford or or, or Grisham and mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. I read all, read my way through all of that. And, okay, I can you know I can yeah. buy that, but yeah. uh, typically I would look for this, and this really does fascinate me because I mean you've got the the base of this is factual. Yeah, and. And there are things that go on. I mean, in the first book, it's Christy Matheson. In the second book, uh, Gamekeepers, that that comes off of uh, the the Black Sox scandal, which was right. toward the end of the the dead ball era. Uh, and I asked myself, okay, there was another gambling scam- scandal the next year it involved Ty Cobb and just Speaker. Uh, there's there's stuff. That, there's all kinds of st- stuff <laughs> and, and and other kinds of scandals too. How much about them do we really know? Do we actually know what they were, that they even happened? Well, maybe somebody is keeping that information to the extent they can from the public. So I created a group called the Gamekeepers, a small group of baseball insiders who created an archive where they store that away so nobody can get to it. And they came up with a system to renew their membership down through time, and it worked for 100 years, and then it fell apart. So my story is about what happened when it fell apart. Um, now, it's a fictional group, but somebody probably was doing that. Uh, not, not too much of a, not too much of a uh, reach. Not a reach. The, the third book about, about Abner Doubleday, the Doubleday myth started in the dead ball era because Albert Spaulding wanted to show that baseball was an American game. This was Teddy Roosevelt time. This was the the emergence of, of the American empire. And it was important to Spalding to show this. So basically, uh, he created a commission to prove that it was an American game. He, I mean, he was a big, by that time, he, he was an old baseball star in his own right. Uh, but he was uh, the the guy who was selling all the balls that were used in the major sure. leagues. He was a big sporting goods mogul. He had the Spalding Baseball Guide, which was the the Bible of baseball each year. Um, and and he took this on uh, for purposes of nationalism and basically created a myth. If you look at the myth, it falls apart instantly on many grounds. Abner Doubleday did, did not, not invent, invent baseball. baseball. <laughs> he didn't invent it in Cooperstown, uh, and he and uh, it's all it's all put together. But strategically, it made a lot of sense. Admiral Doubleday was exactly the kind of guy that you'd want to have invented baseball. He was a Civil War hero. He was the guy who fired the first shot in response to the attack on Fort Sumter. He was the guy who mapped the Everglades and South Florida for the army. He was a hero at Gettysburg. Uh, he was. He was a, there was nothing he couldn't do. Why and and the, the thing that made it good for one thing that made it good for Spalding was that Double D had been dead for 10 years by the time he did it. <laughs> so he could he was free to spin it any way he wanted to. And this was how he chose to do it. Now, there were some other things, interestingly enough, going on. Uh, there's a baseball historian by the name of John Thorne, and he and some others had discovered that there was a an interest by a kind of religious philosophical movement at the time called the Theosophy Society, of which it turned out Spalding and Doubleday, among others, were influential members. And 
there was maybe a conspiracy involving the theosophists to try to push some other agenda. That's what I used as my takeoff point for the, the story in Double Day, Double Take. And in the, the federal case, um, the American and National Leagues got together in 1903 and they created the, the national agreement, which gave them control of Major League Baseball. Right. But that didn't mean that there were no spoilers. And um, in uh, 1913, there was another small minor league called the, the Federal League, and they decided that they were going to challenge to become the next major league. And they started following Ben Johnson. When Ben Johnson came in with the American League, he was stealing players from the national and paying them high salaries and whatever. Well, they followed the same playbook. And they challenged the the established major leagues. And then they sued them in 1914 for antitrust. The antitrust laws were new at that era. This is another, another thing that was going on in, in politics at the time. And so they sued for antitrust, and they decided to go venue shopping. They went to the Northern District of Illinois uh, to the court of a judge named Kennesaw Mountain Landis. And they went there because Landis had made himself famous by tracking down John D. Rockefeller and forcing him to come into court and finding an antitrust case against Standard Oil. So they went there thinking this is a good antitrust thing. What they didn't realize was that Kennesaw Mountain Landis was a gigantic fan of the Chicago Cubs <laughs> Okay, in the established leagues. Right. And so... He let the thing languish for a couple of years until the Federal League was going bankrupt. And finally, they essentially sued the the National and American for peace. And there was a deal struck in which the money guys from the Federal League were allowed to buy some National and American League teams. Uh, the a couple of, of American National League owners took over a couple of franchises. And there were two teams left out. One was the Baltimore Terrapins. And the Baltimore Terrapins uh, sued later on, uh, and that was the that became the case that led to the the antitrust exemption for baseball. The other team was the Kansas City Packers. The Kansas City Packers were forced into bankruptcy by their own league before the deal was made with the major leagues. Basically, they were shut out of the whole thing. That's the starting point. For the federal for the, case. For the federal case. That's, I never knew that Baltimore had a, the Terrapins. Yeah. Now, when, when was UMD founded? When were they the Terrapins? Who came first? Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> figure, I don't figure, know that, figure that out. Um, well, here, here's, here's a baseball question. Why is the World Series called the World Series when we're pretty much just U.S. and Canada? Because. <laughs> you had that answer. Well, I can give you an answer. <laughs> uh, if you go back to the beginning of the World Series— in the dead ball era, the whole point was to make America, to make baseball American. So it was the world. I mean, now Spalding had actually had a world tour of baseball players back in the late 1800s that he sponsored uh, in the off season. They went, there's, there's pictures of them playing baseball at, at uh, the, the pyramids in Egypt and various places around the right. world to take the game around. But, but his claim was it's an American game, and so we're, we are the world. The world. Fair enough. 
fascinating books. Um, you can get them, I'm presuming, at Amazon. You can get them at Amazon. You can get them directly from Sunbury Press. Okay. Uh, you can get them at, at your website, right? Uh, no, I don't sell them, but I, I bounce them to, to Sunbury. Um, you can get them pretty much any place that you can order books online. Barnes & Noble will order them for you. Any online bookseller will do it. I don't know that they're in stores. You want to take a look for This Never Happened, The Gamekeeper's Double Day, Double Take, or The Federal Case, or maybe, come January, The Keystone Corner. And that's uh, Thomas Edison? Thomas Edison. Uh <laughs> Thomas and, and, Edison, and again, this is a this is a twist and the turn here. Where does this <laughs> Thomas Edison turns out to have been a serious baseball fan? There is a quotation from him I found that basically he wrote an essay in a in a newspaper where he said, uh, "I'm probably the world's biggest baseball fan." There was a time when I could have told you the name of every player on every team in the major leagues. He um, he sponsored uh, industrial league baseball teams and industrial leagues were were big during the dead ball era in fact when the draft came along world war one a lot of players to to not go into military service went to work for um, defense industry companies that had industrial league baseball teams which was really what they were doing was playing baseball um well edison i don't know of any any uh examples of people going from the majors to the Edison teams. But there was an Edison team in Brooklyn that produced one or two major leaguers. Uh, there was Not an too far from Menlo Park. No, and there was an Edison. Well, he was in, in uh, West Orange by then. Okay. Um, but not, but again, not far. Uh, and um, there was a, an Edison team in New Jersey in, in uh, I want to say Orange, okay. uh, that was was managed or managed by people who were high executives in Edison's own little small circle. Uh, so he was close to the game. His son, Theodore, uh, had a baseball card collection, you know, the T206 cards. These are the the famous old tobacco cards. The The Honus Wagner T206 is like a four or five million dollar card. Right. Uh, well, Theodore had a collection of about three or four dozen T206 baseball cards that he kept in a ratty old wallet that he carried around with him. <laughs> just, to, just to show off and if he needed to uh, I, trade well, it out. I guess. I mean, there's, there's not a Honus Wagner in there. Uh, there. You can actually, they have them now up at the Thomas Edison National Historic Park. He, he was into baseball. And so uh, in that instance, there's a lot more, there's a lot of Edison in that book and a bit less baseball. But uh, in that case, I used his love of baseball as the key to solving uh, a mystery about uh, an exper a lost experiment of his. There's a good tease. Yes. January? Uh, should be out in January. Fingers crossed, right? Yes. <laughs> are, are, there, are, are publishers like really very timely or is it just sort of a... I have, I have found Sunbury very good to work with. Uh, and I think this book will be, be out pretty close to on time. That's right in the middle of the hot stove season, so there's still time to read it before Pitchers and Catchers report. That's true. That'll be here before we know it. <laughs> Jerry Mannheim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for writing these books. They're fascinating. Uh, again, This Never Happened, The Gamekeepers, Double Day, Double Take, The Federal Case. Uh, you can get them, have them ordered, or check out and see if they're wherever books are sold. You can go to jbmannheimbooks.com, and that's M-A-N-H-E-I-M. Uh, probably like the town in Lank uh, Lancaster County, I think. 
Yep. Uh, there's a lot, like, there's but, a lot of background information about the books there and and reviews. Yeah, and but Mannheim is not like the steamroller because that has no that two, has, that two, has ends. two ends. That has two ends. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And these would make a wonderful Christmas gift for anybody that has a baseball fan in their lives. They absolutely would. Highly recommend it, Jerry. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to this week's Local Business Spotlight. Please make sure to visit ionanapolis.net for all your local news, events, and opinion. And in case you haven't already, please subscribe to the Ion Annapolis Daily News Brief, where we bring you all the day's local news direct to your phone, tablet, or computer in about 10 minutes. It comes to you at 6 a.m. every Monday through Friday, and you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.